Now, before we begin a new series, I want to go back just for a minute and highlight over the past few weeks, we have been talking um, and in a series called our, our, it's our annual four campaign. And we spent several weeks talking about the heart of generosity, what it looks like to be as a follower of Jesus and, and to be seen in the world by what we're for instead of what we're against. And so for the past several weeks, you've been asked to give, to participate um, in order to support a number of nonprofits and how they might represent Jesus in their communities. Um, and we are so excited to share that over the past few weeks, you have raised over $41,000. So if you would give yourself a hand. We are so thankful for your generosity. All of that is going to go um, to a number of organizations in order to serve their communities so that how the name of Jesus will be lifted up in their communities for the sake of the world. Um, and so today we're going to jump into a new series, and it's been a little bit since I've preached, so I have some things to say. Are you guys ready to go? Have you ever looked around the world and asked yourself the question, what is wrong with this place? Like I've seen things or events or stories or articles that lead you to ask such a question. Or maybe it was something that somebody in particular said and you, you heard that and you're like, what is wrong with that person? Like, I can't help but think, like, often, uh, like, scrolling through articles online, it often seems that the kind of things that happen in our world seem like they are from a more barbaric and primitive time, doesn't it? The violence and the bloodshed and the brokenness and the evil often raises for me that question, like, what is this place that we call home? And why are things the way they are? I was recently reading a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and I want to use this as a description because there's something about when you remove yourself a couple generations from a particular sin that you can look at it and call it what it is, evil for, for it is, but it's also um, a particular description close enough that we can feel the tension and the impact of that particular season. James H. Cohn said this, in its heyday, the lynching of black Americans was no secret. It was a public spectacle often announced in advance in newspapers and over radios, attracting crowds of up to 20,000 people. Which raises the question, what is wrong with this world? 20,000 people. That included civic leaders, police officers, kids, pastors, stay-at-home moms. Which I can't help but even wonder, like, was there any tension for the follower of Jesus? Like, was there ever a moment of tension for the follower of Jesus, the, the stay-at-home mom who was baking her apple pie and never cussed and read her Bible every single day when she loaded up her car with her children in order to take them to this family-friendly event? What is wrong with our world? Perhaps something went wrong. And perhaps as you scroll through articles online, maybe you could say the same thing about our own day. And a thousand different things coming to the same conclusion. Is something wrong? And I can't help but also wonder, like, what are the things that my grandkids and great-grandkids one day will look back at this generation and say, what was wrong with the followers of Jesus? Why didn't they say something? G.K. Chesterton in 1910 wrote what, I, what he believed was an answer to that question, what's wrong with our world? And his answer was deeply simple but incredibly profound. He said, I am. I am 
the thing that's wrong. He understood that in order to evaluate the evil out there, you have to start in here. That there's something inside of us that is true in us, but is also true in the world around us that diagnoses the problem. Now, if you are new to the church, before you write this off as some religious fundamentalist idea, I want to let you know that Freud, Plato, MLK Jr., Gandhi, and Jesus all actually agreed on this point. They all actually agreed that the problem is right here. Now, they come to that conclusion by very different ways, and they certainly offer very different solutions to the problem. But many agree on the problem itself, that evil is not just somewhere else, but it is inside of us. Now, G.K. Chesterton, when he said, I am describing the problem, he also wrote this about the progress of the Western world. He said, you're after the right things, but you're ignoring a key part of the diagnosis. In other words, he saw how his own culture was changing, how his own culture was progressing, and said that you're after some very good things, but you're missing the heart of the problem. These words seem deeply prophetic for our own moment, don't they? That often the very things we want better in our world are actually good things. Things like justice and things like life and things like empowerment and equality, all of these things are often good things, but are we after the right things and missing the diagnosis itself? Are we failing to actually answer the question what's wrong because we're so focused on what we should be doing? Now to answer this question about what's wrong, I want to go to the very beginning of the human story. If you are using the Bibles in front of you, it's in Genesis 1. Now if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. So you can flip all the way to the left, just after the table of contents. And I want us to look at the origins of humanity. The story of humanity in the book of Genesis begins with a wildly subversive and powerful poem that explain to us why humans are here. And they explain to us about the God who created us. Listen to how it begins. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. The story begins with God speaking. God speaks goodness and beauty into existence. Now, other ancient Near Eastern creation myths began far differently from the Genesis story. In fact, these other stories began with a cosmic war in the heavens. And it's out of the violence and bloodshed that humanity would come into existence. And humanity then would exist to be slaves to the gods. And a never-ending pursuit in their life to make the gods less angry. Because if you could appease the gods, if you could offer the right sacrifices and do the right things and make sure they don't get too mad at you, sometimes you could get what you want from those gods. But this story doesn't begin out of violence. It begins with beauty. It begins with God uttering this refrain over and over, it is good. Then in verse 26, God creates humanity. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
See, while these other, these other creation stories begin with violence and bloodshed, with human beings made to be slaves to the gods, this story, human beings are made in the image of God. That there is something about humanity in the creation story that this God, Yahweh, this God who would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that humanity held a different position. And instead of being slaves in order to make the gods happy, this God was already pleased with his creation. And this humanity was invited to be a participant with God, given actually responsibility and being a participant in the human project. And so God creates male and female who together would rule and lead in God's good creation. Male and female who together offer a picture of the image of God. Which is all a really, really, really cool beginning to the story, but none of it actually answers the question, well, what's wrong? And the reason I think we should begin in the beginning is because it can be too easy for us to begin with what's gone wrong instead of how it actually began right. To diagnose what's wrong, we have to first know what's no longer right. And so as you continue in the human story, you move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 recounts the creation story, particularly focusing on humanity, giving a different perspective of the same account. And then when we move to Genesis 3, the story takes a dramatic turn that helps us answer that question, what's wrong in this world? Now, in Genesis 3, it's described this way. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you are new to the Bible, this probably sounds like a very odd way to start a very, very long book. Talking snakes and God creating things. Like, what is going on here? Now, now despite how confusing this is, the point here is that there is a spiritual being, that, which is the serpent, that is an enemy to God's good creation. And so however you make sense of this, it is clear that there is an enemy and that there has been a rebellion in the heavens. And this enemy is trying to undo the goodness of God's creation here on earth. And so it begins with the serpent makes a lie. The serpent says, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. That's not what God said. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree. And so this dialogue begins between the serpent and Eve. It continues in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may, eat from, from fruit, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. She corrects the lie of the enemy, and then it continues. It says you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Some translations say you will be like the gods or the spiritual beings, knowing good and evil. And so what happens is this serpent, this enemy, begins to unravel the goodness and the beauty that God made. And he does it with a lie. Did God really say and it's not just ca casting doubt on what God himself said, but it also casts doubt on the, for Adam and Eve on how they actually understood themselves. Because they begin to ask a question, not just about did God really say, but they begin to ask a question, is God holding out on me? Like, is there actually something more to the experience, that human experience that God doesn't have for me? Like, could I actually be better than I really am? Could I know 
Could I be like the gods, knowing good and evil? Is there something else? Am I not enough? Am I really love the way that I am? See, the thing that makes Genesis 3 so important is not just that it happened, but that it happens. But so often, you and I in our life, we are confronted with a lie that puts cracks into the, the very creation that God made. Lies that distort the way we see ourselves. Am I enough? Do I have worth? Or am I all in this? Am I in this all alone? And then what happens on the heels of the distorted view that exists? Verse six tells us the fruit looked good. Now the fruit always looked good. Like it wasn't. It didn't just suddenly look good, but it looked good. And now at this point, the de the desires of humanity's heart get so twisted that they no longer could say no to their desires. It no longer was able to be submitted to the will of God. And so she took it and she ate. And then he took and ate. And so the distortion of their views impact the desires that they have. They try to take their own life into their own hands. So the enemy gives us distorted views that produce disordered desires. The enemy lies to us about who, who we are and it begins to reorient our desires and we try to then live out our own lives defining good and evil based on what we see. One pastor by the name of John Mark Comer talks about it by saying there's deceptive ideas that lead to disordered desires that get normalized in a sinful society. And the idea is that in this shifting and in this distorting, the enemy undoes the things that God made. And so Adam and Eve try to become the rulers of their own kingdom. In fact, this is the human story all throughout the scriptures. It's humanity trying to build their own kingdom instead of living as a part of the kingdom of God. The problem is we make very mediocre rulers of our own kingdoms. We, when we define good and evil based on our own desires, we aren't very good rulers. And as Adam and Eve try to become masters of their own domain, what, they, what happens is they build a kingdom around themselves instead of God. A kingdom that looks nothing like the way of God, which brings us to the problem the problem's me. It's a problem that's been stated by Jesus. It's been stated by Freud. It's stated by Taylor Swift. The problem, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Now, there are a couple distortions in this view that I believe that we can talk about that are incredibly helpful, that we, that we can talk about as a corrective. Because when we better see ourselves the way God sees us, it changes the way we live in the kingdom of God. And so I want to talk about two distortions um, of our views. The one would be called the sinful self. The other would be the authentic self. And I want to talk about each of these. The first being the sinful self. The sinful self would be probably your experience if you have grown up in an evangelical church tradition. Now, I am not suggesting that we are not sinful, that that is not a reality of who we are. I want to just make that very clear before you send emails saying I'm a heretic. Um, but what I want to highlight for us is that often when we tell the human story and our own reality, we start with Genesis 3 and not with Genesis 1. We begin with what's gone wrong and ignore what's good. 
And the way then we look at ourselves is primarily with, through the lens of guilt and shame. That we are stuck in the descriptions of depravity and we ignore the goodness of God's creation. See, the sinful self is a reality. The problem is it's not the primary view of ourself. And when the sinful self is primary, we forget the image of God. When the scriptures tell the human story, the sinful self is just a footnote in the story. The story begins in Genesis 1 with, with humanity created in the image of God, and it is good. And if you look at the timeline of eternity, sin is a very small blip on the map. And that sinful self is reality so much to the point that Jesus enters into the story. That he enters into the story to make us new so that who we are would not be who we were. Now in the world we live, there's also a corresponding distortion that I want to talk about that is incredibly important for us to talk about. And that would be seeing the view of authentic self as the most true version of ourselves. Now, this would be what you would hear when you hear something like, be true to yourself, or you just do you. And the understanding, the description of that as the primary view of yourself separates your body from, from your feelings, your desires. In order to say the thing that's most true about you is what you feel on the inside. That's the most true thing about your experience. The problem is that when you experience something that offends you, it's not just offending what you believe is right and wrong. It's actually offending the very reality of who you are. Now, what's good about this view is that view often does look at the world with some inherent goodness. I would suggest that that comes from a view of God, that we are all created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. The person you disagree with is created in the image of God. The problem is that this view may, may agree with Genesis 1, but it misses Genesis 3. Because when the authentic self is the primary view, we forget that our desires have been distorted. And although your desires, although your authentic self is good... Your desires don't make very good masters. And when you let your desires become your master, you will end up a slave to the kingdom of self instead of, instead of a participant in the kingdom of God. And so what do we do with that reality? See, the way the scriptures describe the work of Jesus is that Jesus is reforming us into his likeness. And that just as Genesis begins with a creation story, with God creating out of the dirt humanity in the image of God, Jesus is coming to build a new creation. That he is recreating us out of the dirt and the brokenness. He is taking the parts of our authentic self and the sinful self, and he is reforming it into something he calls a new humanity. That you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has arrived. And so when Jesus then invites us to love our neighbors, he says we, we love our neighbor as ourself. And this command then is, is, is so important because it ties back to how we actually understand who Jesus says we are. Because we can't love our neighbors as ourself without knowing ourselves. And so if we are to know ourself, the ourself that is reformed by the work of Jesus... The best way we can do that is by seeing the work of Jesus himself. Because I think we need something better. Something better than 
the human story our world is trying to tell, something better than the human story we are trying to write for ourselves. In the book of Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul writes a letter, and in this letter, he has a portion where he describes the birth of Jesus. Now, he doesn't write about it the same way the Gospels write about the birth of Jesus, but he writes some powerful words that I want to read for you, and we will use the words from this section of Scripture all throughout this series leading up to Christmas. Paul writes this, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul wants you to read these words and have Genesis 1 in mind. He wants you to hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, having in mind that when God created humanity, humanity was made in the image of God. Paul wants to talk about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation because this is another creation story. It's another creation event. And this time, what's undone will not be undone again. This time, Jesus, who is the made in the who is the image of the invisible God, he will undo what was undone. Verse 16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You get the picture that as God actually speaks creation into existence. That it's actually the very words of God that connect us to the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus himself is described as the word of God. That Jesus is present at the very time of creation. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. As I picture the brokenness of this world, as I picture the brokenness of relationships... The brokenness because of sin and hurt and suffering. The brokenness between humanity and God. The picture of Jesus bringing things together is a cruciform picture. Of God re-reconciling things back to himself. Of God pulling the things that have been separated back together. And it says about Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. That he might be king. And then in verse 19, it describes the Christmas event when it says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In the pain and the hurt and the suffering of our world, it can be easy to ask the question, God, where are you? And the way that Jesus responds to the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the brokenness in our world, the way he responds to the problem is by making himself visible in a stable. In the stench of a stable, in the chaos of a census in Bethlehem, and there is no room for Jesus in the inn, that's where God himself shows up. In your own life, it's often in the places where God is, seems the least present that he shows up and he makes himself known. God makes himself visible. The, Jesus, the perfect expression of goodness and beauty and truth, shows up in a manger offering a new creation. Offering to undo what was done. 
through the life and the death and resurrection. Paul describes it through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Jesus offers peace. He offers a wholeness because Jesus in his coming undoes your distorted views and disordered desires. What Jesus does for us is he offers us a better way. He makes visible a better way. He reminds us of who we are. He reminds us that we are made in the image of God. He reminds us that that his creation is good. And in a world where the kings were on their thrones at the birth of Jesus, claiming to be the very image of God, and forcing people through violence to be a part of their kingdom, Jesus makes visible a better kingdom. And so Jesus isn't like these other images. He's not like the images of those kings who lead with power and violence. And he's not like the images that we are that is undone by the lies of the enemy. This image is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And he offers something better, something he calls the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, he shifts your view back to the image of God. Because the image of the God, the image of God is the beginning of the story, but it's also the end of the story. As humanity takes its place in God's creation, in God's kingdom, and then he invites us to submit our desires to the way of Jesus. To not follow the lead of our own desires. To not trust every feeling we have, but to submit those to Jesus. To follow his lead wherever it takes us. This is a better way. It's a more human way. I would suggest it's even the most loving way. Now when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he often describes it in terms of the wise and foolish. In fact, he even says the wise person hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And so what I want to give to you is a way to put this into practice. Because I don't want these to just be words you hear. I want to give you something you can do with this. Now, doing these things doesn't make you more loved by God or more known by God or more made in the image of God. Those things are already true of you on account of Jesus. All right, so you can rest easy and know that. But I also want to help you as you're figuring out how do I follow Jesus? What does that look like in my daily life? And so I want to give you two practices that you can do over the course of this week. The first would be called affirmations. The second would be saying no to something you want. Both of these will help us when it comes to understanding we're made in the image of God and our desires need some reordering in the kingdom of God. So the first, the practice of affirmations. Now, if you are not a Christian, I believe you can practice this even not believing in Jesus and it will actually be good for your brain. So even if you want nothing to do with Jesus, um, you can do the practice of affirmations, which would be saying positive things out loud. And psychology has shown that in negative thought patterns, positive statements out loud actually rewires the chemistry of your brain and changes the way you respond in stress and anxiety. And so even if you want nothing to do with Jesus, I would suggest still trying this. If, however, you are a follower of Jesus, I believe it's even better. Because you're not just then practicing positive thinking and not just relying what your inner self can say about yourself. You're actually relying on something outside of yourself in the person of Jesus and who Jesus says you are. And so what I want you to do in practicing this is I want you to to say these things out loud every day over the course of the next week. For some of you, this will be incredibly painful to do. Because many of you don't ever, many of you are never this kind about yourself. 
And so what I want you to do is I want you to pick a time every day. Maybe it's on your way to work. You take this out. You read it on your phone. Uh, maybe it's when you're getting ready in the morning. You put these in your mirror. I want you to say these out loud. And what you'll be doing, one, is you'll actually be literally rewiring your brain and how you think about yourself. But you'll also be saying what God himself says about you. And so you say, I am loved. I'm known. I'm good. I'm strong. I'm beautiful. I'm brave. I'm blessed. I'm enough. I'm a son. Or I'm a daughter. I'm not alone. And if there's one of those you want to skip over, that's the one you really should make sure you say. Why? Because and in doing this, what are you teaching yourself? You are undoing the lies of the enemy in order to remind yourself that I'm made in the image of God. All of these are true of you because you are made in the image of God. And what has been lost in the distortion of your view and in your sin is recreated and made true of you because of the work of Jesus. The second practice, saying no to something you want, is, is going to be far more difficult for many of you. Historically, Christians have often, often practiced abstaining from things like food. That would be called fasting. At times, abstaining from sex. That would be called celibacy. And the desire to do this was not because those things were bad things. That was not what they were trying to suggest. What they understood, though, is that they needed to say no in order to learn to curb their desires. Because their desires were good servants, but they were not good masters. And so they needed practice. By saying no to some good thing, you can practice now what you'll need your muscle memory for later. And so maybe, maybe this week you have a day where you say no to all technology. You turn it all off. Technology isn't a bad thing, but it's the saying no to that thing that will lead you to do the right thing when technology becomes a problem. Or maybe you get off social media for a period of time. Again, not because it's a bad thing, but maybe that when the, when the moment comes when it's, when it's a temptation to become a bad thing, you now have some habits that you've learned how to already say no. Maybe, maybe you pick a small amount of money to live on every day for a period of time. That I'm going to live on this small amount of money, which is, which is less than I normally would do, but in order to learn how to curb my spending habits. Maybe it's saying no to a day that you normally work. Then you take that day off of work. Now, again, all of those are good desires. But most of us need to practice saying no to the things we want because sometimes the things we want are not the things that God wants. As we follow Jesus, he is forming us into his likeness. Jesus, the scriptures teach us, is the image of the invisible God. And in our world, it can be so incredibly to see God. It can be so incredibly difficult. Yet it is Jesus who shows up in the midst of our world. And Jesus shows up and makes himself visible because you are made in the image of God. So that in those moments when God seems absent, that Jesus makes himself close. And when Jesus makes himself visible, what he makes visible is what he intended from the very beginning. That the beginning of the story is also the end of the story. It's a new creation in the end that he wants you to represent him 
to the world. And when we see a humanity, when we see a church, that often doesn't look like very rep good representatives of the image of God. What Jesus comes to do is he comes to reform us, to come to shape us into his likeness so that when we have given way through our desires into building our own kingdom, Jesus teaches us to build his kingdom. So Jesus comes and he makes himself visible and invites us into a better way to be human, to live as he created us to be. He invites us to have him on the throne and to be a part of what he calls the kingdom of God, which in Genesis we see is the being made in the image of God to represent God to the world around us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the image of the invisible God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your working among us. That we would see who you are, that we would see what you were doing. Jesus, help us to see who we truly are correct the distortions in our own views and help us to see that we are made in the image of God. Help us to see that we are good. Jesus, would you show us who we are this week? Remind us the view that you have of us. And Jesus, help us to put our desires in their proper place. Not in a category of bad, but in a category of being a servant to you. Help us to live in your kingdom. Help us to be human the way that you teach us. To not only see ourselves as made in the image of God, but to treat others as though they were also made in the image of God. Because that is how you made us to live. 